You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The following paragraphs are from a fanfiction story titled The Wine Dark Sea, written by today's guest fanfiction author, Snagoff. Ash, where are you going? And what do you wish? The sky is clear, and Crowley can name every constellation in the firmament. He had put them there, and lived under his own light. The chalk-white hills of the Seven Sisters gleam bright behind him. The waves of the wine-dark sea lick at his boot. He pulls a small container from the pocket of his jacket. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust... His hands are sharp with angles and he spreads the ashes over the water. The stars glimmer in the darkness, a mirrored black and endless night. Stars like herringfish, waiting for nets of silver and gold. Close your eyes. Don't be afraid. Sail that beautiful sea. I don't want to stop there. Rewind the tape. Put it up here instead. Three months ago, they had lingered over a bookshop. The leathered sofa, the wingback chair. There's a bottle of wine between them. There's laughter in their mouths. I won't bore you with the details. Look at the equation. Reduce it to bare facts. Two men sit laughing in Soho, one with red hair, one with white. How red? As red as what Moses saw burning a bush. How white? as white as a dove, come back from the flood. Aziraphale's face has grown thinner. Crowley reaches out with his open palm to touch his cheek. I love you, he thinks, and it hums in his chest. He can hear his heartbeat singing, I love you, I love you, I love you. The sun comes through the curtains. The shadows are long in the gold of the afternoon light. There are four walls, four walls and no map, This is the ark on the waves, sailing out on the dark sea. Stay in the boat, where it is safe. Keep an eye on the water. We don't get to know where we are. Aziraphale falls asleep next to him, head fallen upon his shoulder. Crowley brushes the hair from his forehead, weaving their fingers together. He can hang on, hang on for now. When they go to bed that night, he says, I love you like it is oxygen. It's too big of a phrase. Never gets the details right. The nitty-gritty. He kisses Aziraphale and says, I love you. To the roof of his mouth. The calcium of his teeth. I love you to the bend of his belly. To his elbow. The spot behind his ear. I love you. I love you. I love you. This is your history. That you loved. And were loved. the north, south, east, and west four corners of the world, greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest, 
I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Now, folks, this might sound like a strange thing to say in 2022, but I believe in miracles because today our special guest fanfiction author is Snagov. They also go by Ripe Teeth on AO3. I won't go into the whole backstory of how this happened, but suffice it to say that I've been wanting to talk to Snagov for a really long time. So this feels like a bucket list dream come true, and I am so excited for this conversation. Snagov has written under several pen names over the years, and they've written so many stories that I can't possibly name all the fandoms. But most recently, they have been writing fanfiction for the terror fandom. So that's a big chunk of what we will be talking about today. Snagov is a classically trained cook and former pastry chef. They don't work in that industry anymore, but most of their hobbies do involve cooking, which I've said before is super impressive to me because I am the biggest disaster in the kitchen. So super, super cool that they can do that. They also love to play video games. They love horror movies, sea dramas, and they're a big coffee nerd enthusiast. Hell yeah. Stagov, I am so happy that you are here today. Welcome to the Fanfic Maverick. How are you? I'm good. How are you? So, so good. Thank you so much for taking time to be here. Oh my god, of course. This is an honor. I've never been on a podcast before. Awesome! Well, we are so honored to have you here today. Of course, I always love to start at the very beginning with everybody's fanfiction origin stories. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about the time that you first encountered fanfiction? How did that happen? Oh, that was so long ago. It was a million years ago, and I was on Yahoo.com. I was 11 years old. It was 1997. And I was looking for anything I could find on Hanson, the band. And the very first thing that came up, yeah, the very first thing that came up was Weeping Willow, a Hanson fanfic. And I was curious, so I opened up all 100K of it and read, which was an original character Taylor Hanson ship pairing, and got lost in it. So basically, from there on, I just got really into that for the next couple of years. And when I moved into another band is my fixation, which was Deer and Gray, which is a J-Rock band that was really popular at the time. They're still popular as a metal band, which I'm still into. Curious what their fan fiction was, and I assumed it was going to be original characters and discovered that they were shipping the band members together, which introduced me to the concept of Slash. Ooh. Yeah, and I became very interested in that. And I remember very clearly at the time, I'm probably about 14 or 15, and I sat there and I was very interested in Harry Potter, and I was like, I wonder if there's Harry Potter fan fiction. And I go online, and sure enough, there was a lot, a lot of Harry Potter fan fiction. <laughs> of course, right? Of course. <laughs> yeah. I think the first thing I read was Dreary. Oh, that's so cool. Because yeah, Harry Potter was like one of the monoliths of fan fiction back during that era. So I'm sure that you had way more than you could possibly consume. Way more. I've, I've never caught up. Oh, that's so, so cool. Now, do you remember where you were reading this Harry Potter fan fiction? Was it like uh, fanfiction.net? Or was it more, you know, on LiveJournal? Or do you remember? It was mostly fanfiction.net. Back then, a lot of people also had their own sites. Like, the, it would just be a web ring with, you know, Geocities or Angel Fire or Tripod or something. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> I'm from that era. So me it would too, usually be too, hosted there. <laughs> yeah. and, and definitely LiveJournal, too. Once I, I got involved with LiveJournal, it was just a lot of LiveJournal. Oh, that is so, so cool. It's so funny how many of us got into fanfiction seriously back in the Harry Potter days. It's funny to me that I actually started out reading, oh, what's the, oh, Snoopin, you know? I, I started out reading a lot of Snoopin fanfiction and was like, oh my God, so cool. And then eventually, like, you know, migrated from there to the sneering thing. 
but yeah, like <laughs> it's definitely all about snooping for me for a really long time. <laughs> There's definitely a lot of options. <laughs> I, I've read so I definitely read some of that. I read some Wolf Star in Dreary, and I they didn't really ever like grab my attention until I got into Snary just because of that incredibly messed up relationship that those two have. Oh, I know, I know. Like that whole thing with them it just. When I encountered some of the old school OG writers that did Snary, um, and I'm so fortunate that I did, it just, it's like lightning went off in my brain a little bit, (laughs) you know, because they just did such a good job with showing like how incredibly messed up, you know, the relationship is, but also how much potential is there too. So I really appreciated, you know. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's so much nuance and fireworks to them and it just, uh, I've never gotten over it. Oh, absolutely. And I love <laughs> I love that your first fan fiction was Hansen because I think people sometimes our age, I feel like sometimes we think that bandfic is kind of a newer fan fiction phenomenon a little bit. Yeah. But then when you think about it, no, it's really not, right? <laughs> because like people have been writing fan fiction about bands for a really long time, I guess. You know, so before the One Direction stuff, guys, <laughs> there was Hansen. <laughs> There sure was. <laughs> oh, that's so, so great. I love that. You know, going along with that, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on how your opinions and thoughts on fan fiction have evolved over time because you have been reading it for a really long time. 1997 is actually when I started reading fan fiction as well, right? So we've been reading it about the same amount of time. I know that my own thoughts and perspectives on fan fiction have evolved in that 25 years of, of reading it and encountering it and everything. So I was wondering, what were your thoughts on fan fiction when you first discovered it versus your thoughts on fan fiction now? That's so interesting because I, I really, I was so young. I don't really remember what my thoughts were beyond the fact that I was just floored that it existed. I was just, fast. I've always been a very curious, if you tell me not to read something, I'm going to read it. That's just how I am. Um, so I was just like, what is this? I need to know everything about this. And it was just wild to me that like, I was a kid that very much spent like a lot of time alone and spent a lot of time in my head. And the fact that you could write these daydreams down and other people would be interested in reading them was just really fascinating to me. And I got in this whole concept of wanting to be a fan fiction writer fairly desperately. Like, that was almost more important than publishing a book someday. I wanted to be a fan fiction writer, you know, and I would write out all these titles and these ideas and these summaries and make these very, very terrible Photoshop graphics to go with these non-existent stories and then never write them because I wasn't at a skill level that I felt okay, like, actually writing a story at. And it was just, like, this need to be a part of this community that just all sharing these, like, important stories. And I just, I didn't really have super strong opinions about fan fiction beyond the fact that I just wanted to be a part of it so desperately. And even now, it's kind of the same thing. I'm just really fascinated by the fact that there is this community of just storytelling, and none of it really matters, and it's not held to a barrier of publication as like an entry level to get in. It's just people telling stories that are important to them, and we all inhale them, whether or not we even really agree with a lot of the things, or even if we want a lot of the same things, or even if it's a concept we've never thought about before, it's all they hit some kind of thing within us that we want to know or share or connect with them. I just think it's really interesting. I think we need a community where there is no barrier to it, where where you can just join and tell a story. I love that. I love that because the community aspect is so important, 
right? Yeah. The community aspect of fan fiction is inherent in the act of writing fan fiction. And that's just so, so beautiful. I love that even like it sounds like from a young age, that's what you were aspiring to was the storytelling, of course. But it sounds like you also had some sort of draw to the community aspect of it. I was always really drawn to the community because it just is so everyone's so excited to examine not only the characters, but in a sense, we're really all examining ourselves. And one of the things I think is the funniest about fan fiction is when you're in a community and we're all talking about our favorite fix or our favorite tags. And in a way, we all know we're telling on ourselves, right? Like we're only reading these <laughs> because we are interested and we all politely agree to not call that out on each other. Um, so we're being seen, but we're not being seen at the same time. I think that's important and healthy to kind of even in an oblique way, talk about certain things about ourselves, in a sense. I love that you have just brought that point up because, like, to me, that is one of the most fundamental reasons why I personally love fan fiction so much. I mean, of course, it's entertaining and it's wonderful and beautiful, and I love seeing different writing styles and when words fly off the page and speak to me, like, it makes my heart so happy. But the moment that I realized that what we are doing here with fan fiction is exploring ourselves, the whole game changed for me. You know, when I realized that that's what we were doing, it just like was such a huge revelation to me. And one of the reasons why I will never stop singing from the rooftops how amazing fan fiction is, because if we're not here as human beings exploring ourselves and what it means to be human, then what are we doing here? Right, exactly. Like, it's such a fundamentally human thing. It's what makes us human. It's telling a story and listening to stories. It's how we've passed down our history. I actually think it's kind of terrible that a lot of it is behind money and agents and publication at this point. And that's what I like about fan fiction is it doesn't matter. You can tell a story. It doesn't matter who you are. Yes, yes. I love that. You know, you've probably seen this quote flying around the internet. I'm late to the party, so I just saw it the other day. But um, have you seen that quote by Henry Jenkins? where he's talking about how fan fiction is, in a way, a response to the power of storytelling being taken away from us by corporate interests, by all of these organizations that do it for profit now. And that role of storytelling has been taken by, you know, these people that do it for profit. And fan fiction is sort of a response to that where the people are taking that power back in a way and saying, hey, these are our stories, you know? Yeah. (laughs) It's always been a communal thing, you know? There's never been another time until, I I think copyright, if I remember correctly, began somewhere in the 17th century. Yes, absolutely. I love that because you're absolutely correct. Copyright is such a new thing, comparatively speaking, right? Historically Mm -hmm. speaking. And so, yeah, like, you're right. This is the first time in history where our cultural myths are being fed to us by organizations that are doing it for profit, not necessarily because they want to tell a great story or because they're trying to add to, you know, the ethos of the culture or what have you. But it's it's a money making venture, you know, and that's the first time that this has happened. But humans have always wanted to tell stories. It's part of who we are. So, yeah, fan fiction is an important part of that in a modern sense. I love that. Thank you so much for that. How has fan fiction impacted you personally, like on a personal level? I'm fascinated by how broad that question is, just because it's talking about who you are, like as a person and like the friendships and relationships you've made. And I've made so many friendships through it. 
but also I think in a way it also affects just your outlook on life. And kind of going with the previous question, it's made me be far less dogmatic in storytelling and literature and just not only what I write, but what I consume. Because I remember when I first began to read fan fiction, that was so broad and not something I would find in like a regular story or a regular book that I could pull off a library shelf. I started to realize that it does not matter what forms or boundaries that we tend to usually limit a story being told. You could write any kind of transformative work. And that's when I really started to seek out things that push the limit on how language is used. And I remember very clearly there is a snare, a snare effect, the acid and cynic wrote where it, it's two stories being told at the same time and they're coded with different columns. So you're reading both simultaneously. And I was just floored by that, the format that used, which is something you don't see in regular books. If you buy a novel, you buy a novel. You have novels, you have poetry books, you have short stories. But in reality, these are just words. So why do we have to be limited to effectively three different forms of literature? You don't. And that really started to change my way of thinking about words. And, and I started to, to look at other authors. There's a lot that do strong non-linear narrative works. This is like El Italo Calvino, who's one of my favorite authors. When I read um, If on Winter's Night, A Traveler, that blew my mind. And it's something that you can do in fan fiction. Actually, one of my favorite fan fiction writers has done something sort of similar, uh, Mothfinder General. But in that book, basically, it's the concept of a, it's a man who's trying to read a book. He picks up a book and he reads the first chapter and then discovers that the rest of the book doesn't have the rest of the chapter. So the second chapter is all him looking for the rest of the book. The third chapter is he finds the book and he starts reading the second chapter only to discover it's the wrong book. So he continues in the fourth chapter on another narrative. So in a way, like the book makes it almost deeper because you're involved in the narrative in a way that you don't expect. And you can do that in fan fiction. You don't have a publishing house telling you that you can't do that. And most of your, your audience, because they're not really, they're already half invested in you. Uh, so you can do a lot more with it. They already know who your characters are. They know what your background generally is. You can change and you can innovate when it comes to the actual storytelling and the actual direction and platforming of a fic a lot more than you can if you were just going to tell an original story. So that I, I just made me way more creative when it came to stories. It's also the same with now music and, and movies as well. It just makes me think a lot more and be, take more risks than I think I would have otherwise. Right. It sounds like you're talking or referring to like the unbound artist phenomenon, you know, where yeah. there are no rules, right? Mm -hmm. Because like yeah. you said, fan fiction writers are beholden to no one, you know? Mm -hmm. So the potential for pushing those boundaries is phenomenally broad. And that's just so interesting to think about. I was reading this weird article the other day, and I do not remember who wrote it. So I apologize. But they were talking about how some of the interesting trends that you tend to see in fan fiction are starting now to leak into published books and movie scripts and music and things like that, just because fan fiction is where these things are being experimented on. So it's really interesting to see that parallel. Yeah, it's kind of exciting in a way to think that that's kind of where things are being generated. Absolutely. I love that. That is so super cool. You know. Speaking of writing, you have one of the most unique writing styles that I've ever encountered anywhere. Absolutely gorgeous. It reminds me a lot of Jonathan Safran Foer, if you've ever read anything by them. I want to know how your writing journey developed. We know that you published your first fan fiction piece in 2018, so it hasn't been that terribly long. But I'm wondering, did you start out with writing with fan fiction? Or did you learn by writing original projects before you published fan fiction in 2018? 
And I would love to know what inspired your very first piece of creative writing. You know, I really don't know how I've developed the style. I think the way I kind of refer to it is it's a bit of a magpie writing style. I read things and then I, I mimic certain aspects that I like and I either keep them or discard them whether or not they work with what I'm trying to do at any given time. It does mean if I'm also reading a book, it tends to influence what I'm writing at the time. But most of the writers that I've really deeply loved over the years have been very intense and confessional writers. Jeanette Winterson is a great example and Anne Carson. Ocean Vuong, who wrote On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, which has been a direct influence on a lot of my recent writing. And one thing I really love beyond just the confessional and the intensity, which also makes me favor like first person and limited third person point of view. I really like any writer that can combine the beautiful and the grotesque. And there's a couple different ways to do it. Some writers really like to talk about incredibly beautiful things, but in very brisk, direct ways like Anne Carson, whereas then you have other writers that tend to like to write about really horrific things, but in very beautiful, poetic ways, kind of like John Gardner, who wrote Grundle. It's this beautiful, long poem. It's a novella, but it's all about Grendel being this bitter, brood, old, just wounded, vindictive monster crunching on skulls and blood and everything. And I just love the juxtaposition. Like, I'm a, I'm a monster lover. Like, I love anything that's, that's horrible. If it can be written poetically, or if you can make the beautiful horrible in a way, that, like, that's what I'm drawn to, and I'm interested in seeing that. Oh, my God. As you're talking about that, that is bringing up lines and images from, you know, we're talking about two of your fan fictions today. The second one we're talking about today is Wine Dark Sea. And as you're talking about that, I can absolutely see where you use that style in Wine Dark Sea, because there are parts of that where you're talking about some really awful stuff, kind of medically grotesque things, but doing it in such a beautiful poetic way that it just kind of like guts your heart out a little bit in the best way possible. So I can absolutely see how that's like definitely a style that you've developed over the years. I love it. I think it's amazing. Thanks. It's really, it, it, I don't know. It just really, it's just what I'm interested in. I want to see kind of the story of the, the things we don't want to talk about or the kind of the gross things like told. I, I don't know. There, some, something has a draw. Everything has a draw. And I, I want to, that's what I like to look at is all the things we maybe don't want to look at, you know. But that's what I appreciate the most, I think, about your writing is that it's so honest. I have, of course, like encountered many different fan fiction writers in my 25 years. <laughs> and so, of course, there's a lot of writers out there that are, you know, telling honest stories. But for some reason, just the style of your particular honesty, there are things that you have said in your writing that I have never seen anywhere else before that are so brutally honest that I connected to immediately because I could point at it and say, yes, that's me right there. And nobody has ever verbalized that before. It's an ugly, terrible part of being human or being me or whatever, right? And nobody has ever said it out loud, but they just said it. I love that you do that. It's so gorgeous. I think writing needs to be, at least for me, it's a catharsis sort of thing. Like, I'm not good at putting, I mean, I'm really not good at just generally putting my thoughts into words. Like on the spot, or if I'm talking to a friend, I'm always going to shy away from, from really claiming my own emotions. But if I can put them in, in somebody else's head or a character's head, then I can finally say, here's this messy, horrible thing that I have thought. And it feels very good, especially when, like when you're saying, or when there's a comment that's like, I really connected with this, this moment with you. And then you're just like, 
that's a human moment. I don't have to feel alone in this anymore because somebody else has felt this horrible thing. I think that's really a big thing that, that I want to look at. That, that's the, the most rewarding to me. Right. That rewarding connective aspect. Connecting emotionally with another human being. I'm sure that feels just really good and really beautiful. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I absolutely love it. So would it be fair to say then that you really didn't write creatively then before you started doing fan fiction in 2018? Yeah, not really. I wrote a little bit here and there. I was terribly frustrated as a writer because I wrote a little bit of poetry throughout high school and college. Not, not a lot. And I think two short stories. And I kept trying. I've actually been write, working on a novel since I was 16, which goes back to the question of the first piece of creative writing, which is about the very complicated relationship between a mother and a daughter. That was the first thing I, I started writing. And it's still sort of the thing that I am writing to this day. And I still haven't finished it. I'm getting closer, but still, still haven't finished any of that yet. Most of my stuff comes through poetry, because that's really where I trained, in a sense. And it's one thing, it's interesting also, because I always hear things in my head while I'm saying them. And a lot of the feedback that I've gotten is that there's a, a beat or a melody or a musical quality to my writing, which I think makes sense, because I'm always hearing things and moving words around in my head as well. So I think that poetry training comes through because I can, I can hear almost the gallop of the words in my head as I'm, as I'm shifting sentences around so that they kind of balance correctly or read correctly. Yes, absolutely. I can absolutely see that. You know, it's funny because as I'm reading fan fiction, I don't always do this, but when I come across a line that I can tell is going to sound gorgeous out loud, like musically, I'll start reading it out loud <laughs> just for me, you know? Yeah. I can absolutely see why people would say that there's some sort of musical quality to what you do, because when I tried it out loud a couple of times, oh, man. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Yeah, there's definitely like a poetry bent. Absolutely. <laughs> I, uh, I remember trying my hand at poetry when I was like in my 20s. That was fun just because um, I don't consider myself a writer at all. I leave that to the professionals and I just enjoy what other people write. <laughs> but I did like poetry because you can actually finish something. You know, the few times I tried my hand at it, I was like, oh, look, I actually finished like one piece of poetry. Like, oh, and it wasn't very good. But, you know, it felt good to accomplish something at least. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I think that's why I did a lot of poetry, too. It's short. So, <laughs> yes, I think there's a lot of um, emotional storytelling that can go into just a couple of lines. It's amazing to me how people do that. To this day, I still read poetry and fan fiction. So yeah, they, if I'm not crying over poetry, I'm crying over fan fiction. It's <laughs> fine. Uh, <laughs> Same. <laughs> uh, so one of the things that we're talking about today, fandom-wise, of course, is the terror, which I had never heard of before you mentioned it and before I started reading your fan fictions that are based on the terror fandom. And I am so super glad that you introduced me to the terror it's so fascinating because The Terror is, well, I should specify the first season of The Terror, and I think the second season too, actually, they're based on real life historical events. The first season of The Terror basically goes over the real life historical events of what happened during the Northwest Passage Expedition in the 19th century, which is such a fascinating point of history. And such a fascinating thing to study. So you gave me the opportunity to kind of dive into the Northwest Passage, historically speaking, which was amazing. I loved every second of it. 
I'm wondering how you got into the terror. How did you discover that fandom? And I also wanted to know if you already knew a lot about the history of the Northwest Passage Expedition before you got into the terror, or was getting into the terror fandom how you like got into the history aspect? Oh, yeah. So the terror kind of came in a time that I really just needed something. So it was early in COVID. I think it was March or April of 2020 when I launched it. And I had also recently left a fandom and didn't really have, I was kind of casting around for just, just anything. And a couple of my friends watched it and were deranged posting about it on Twitter. And so, of course, I was like, I need to know what you're talking about. Just what is this? And the terror was on Hulu, so I wound up sitting and watching it. I knew a little about the Franklin Expedition before. Not a bunch, but I grew up in Michigan, surrounded by shipwrecks and lakes, so I've always had a shipwreck fascination. It's like the peak ghost story you can tell is a, is a, is a shipwreck. Anything yes. about that? Yes. <laughs> and there's something so haunting about a shipwreck. I just think they're so fascinating. So I knew a little bit about it, also because Michigan is basically Canada light. Right, right. <laughs> so just a little bit. And then I watched it, and the terror is just, you can watch it a thousand times, and it will reveal something new to you each time, but it's such a beautifully written show, and the character dynamics are just fascinating. It's really more character-driven than it is plot-driven, as much as the plot is already there. And so I was just so drawn to all of these different characters and how they all related to each other that I was, just, I was like, I need to know more about this. And from there, both how I got into it and then the fandom itself, like, it's a huge we're almost a dual fandom in the fact that like we're very into the show, but we're also fixated on the historical expedition. So from there, you just have so much to, to learn about. You can spend forever not just looking at the show, but what about his Victorian life in Britain? And what about the Canadian Arctic and the expedition itself and read the letters and journals? You can just you can spend forever just researching this. So I just kind of got stuck. No, and that's so beautiful to me that it like you said, it's this dual fandom where not only do you love the artistic retelling of this piece of history, but you can also, like you said, get super deep into the actual real life history of these people. Because these characters in the show were real people with real lives and real backgrounds. And it's just, you know, and then when you study the history of what was going on at the time and everything, it's just so incredibly fascinating. So this is actually the first time that we've covered a fandom on the show that has a historical aspect like this, which I just I love because I love history so much. So this was such a treat for me. I have a silly question for you. Being as how these are real life people that existed, do the folks in the Terra fandom consider what they're writing RPF? Because these were real people. I mean, yes, I, I don't think you can get away from that. So I think we're all aware of the fact that we're basically writing RPF of an RPF show. So <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like we're all keenly aware of the fact that these were real people. We're always looking them up. And there's a, a truly incredible, I, I have to shout this out just because I, I am floored. There's a truly incredible creative work of art that is based on the historical Graham Gore. And it's a self-insert, which I think is just, a genius combination to take the incredibly modern concept of a self-insert and put a man from 1845 as the other part of the ship. So I, that's just, it's, it's a very creative fandom. I think you can't get away from the fact that it is a historical fandom and that it's historical RPF, no matter what you're doing. So we're writing RPF of RPF, and we have a very clean delineation of what we know is show 
fan on. Like we know what came from the show and also what came from history. One of the most interesting things is actually James Fitzjames, who's one of the leads of the show, because his character is very different in the show versus what we know of him historically. So we have to make strong distinctions over any characterization over, over that particular man. He's very boisterous and confident in reality, but in the show, he definitely has more of a melancholy aura. So I think at any time we're aware of the fact that like there's a separation there, but also that we are writing historical RPF. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you so much for answering that for me, because ever since I started diving into the history of the, uh, the Franklin expedition, that question has been kind of rolling around in my brain. Like, this is technically RPF. But then the show, even though the show follows a lot of the actual history, of course, there's fictionalized parts of character aspects and, you know, plot and all that. And so it's like this really interesting, <laughs> like this duality where you're like, some of it's fictional, some of it's real, and it's all wrapped up in actual historical events, which is so super fascinating. You know, it's funny because I was a history major. I got my, uh, my bachelor's degree in history. And I know that we did cover the Franklin Expedition at one point, very briefly in one of my classes. <laughs> Every time that I think of the Franklin Expedition, I always think of Stan Rogers' song, Northwest yes. Passage. I have been a huge Stan Rogers fan for years and years and years. And uh, when I first heard that song, I thought, oh, my God, what a beautiful, beautiful song. It was the first song of his that I ever memorized the lyrics to. Silly me. Like. I didn't realize until about a year later that, oh, this is based off of the Franklin (laughs) Expedition. And this is like real life shit, you know? And that just made it kind of more special. But I never really dove into it on the level that I did for this. And yeah, like at the end of it, you feel almost like you know these people. And I know that's like a really silly thing to say. I I mostly read up on um, on Crozier, Franklin, and Fitzjames. And by the end of it, I was like, oh. I feel like we're friends now. Like, I know yep. these people. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm always emotional over Francis Crozier at any given time. <laughs> they do. They feel like friends at some point. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. So is that how it was for you, too, where you were like, oh, I feel so attached to them now? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you, sometimes you just get struck with the realization that they were real people. Like, you never forget. But every once in a while, you're just standing there and you remember, for example, I have the victory point note framed and it's on my wall because I'm a weirdo and I want to be sad every time I look up I guess and sometimes <laughs> you just look up and you're like this really happened and it just floors you and it's just I don't know it's very overwhelming at times but at the same time you're kind of keeping their memory alive in a way even though it might be in a very questionable yeah. manner well <laughs> I don't I don't know about questionable but I had that same thought though when I was thinking about this I was thinking if I was a you know a famous sailor and I died for the cause or whatever, how would I feel about hundreds of years later, people writing fan fiction about me and studying the history of me and my life because of the show and because of the book, because, you know, we know it's based on the, um, the there was a book. There was a book. And then I thought, well, I, don't, I really don't know what Crozier and Fitzjames and Franklin would feel about that. But if it was me, you know, like, <laughs> I think that'd be like hella cool. So. Same. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I've already given permission to everyone to write fan fiction about me, so... Oh, yes. <laughs> I love that. Just blanket permission, guys. Just blanket, blanket permission. permission. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I could go on and on and on about all of the history facts that I found fascinating, and I just kind of wanted to, like, vomit them all over the podcast. So 
Before we go into that, I'm just going to apologize in advance to the fan fiction community out there listening to this part of the episode. I'm sorry if history is not your thing, but I get so excited and I cannot wait for Snagov to get excited here with me. So we're just going to effusively talk about history here for a little bit. So I feel like I came away from this with so many interesting facts that I just found fascinating or funny. So I'll share mine, but I was hoping that you could share yours first. I'm sure that there were many points of historical fact that you found super interesting or fascinating. I want to know what they are. What are they? Oh, it's so hard to say. Everything is so fascinating when it comes to the Franklin Expedition. So it's, it's I think for me, it's, it's just, it's very hard to separate from the mystery itself. So I'm always thinking about, like, I have a framed map of the Northwest Passage. I have the victory point note on my wall. I have a tattoo of the Terror, which is just the ships currently iced in the water. Um, so I'm, I'm just always thinking about, like, what actually happened. And the last thing we really know is that they entered Baffin Bay in July 1845, and two whalers saw them, Prince of Wales and, and something else, which I can't remember at the time, but they, two whalers saw them and recorded that. And that's the last we know from a living person that's, like, confirmed, and I will make a distinction, confirmed by, like, a European written, like, source. Because I don't want to mitigate the Inuit sources. There are Inuit sources, oral sources, which the European Victorian community largely discredited. No, and we're recently bringing that back in, which I'm very glad. But I'll go back to that in a bit. Anyway, so that's like the last time that we really know of them from like a written source is these whalers. And then when we come back, the next thing that we know is the victory point note. And we see that Graham Gore, Lieutenant Graham Gore, signed it with his party. Um, in May 1847. And at that time, they he writes all well. Everything is fine. They've been iced since so September 1846. But that's expected. Like, that is not an unexpected thing for these ships. Like, they know they're going to be iced right. in at some point. Yes. The thing that I can't convey enough is how much they expect to be fine. Like, these ships are technological marvels. It's interesting because when you first, you're like, why would you name a ship the Terror and Erebus? Like, Erebus means darkness, you know, if you look at yes. the like, <laughs> yeah. like, Why would you name this? And then you realize that these are battleships. Like, literally, the HMS Terror fought in the War of 1812. It did. Yeah, against the United States. And it's actually one of the ships that was involved in the bombing that the whole Star Spangled Banner was written about. Like, that. The Terror yes, was part of that. I found that so fascinating so cool. when I learned that. I was like, what? <laughs> exactly. It was, yeah, so that was a that was a Hecla-class bombship. And Erebus was a Vesuvius-class. It was just a, a slightly... Slightly bigger, slightly more powerful, which is why she was, like, she was the lead ship there. Anyway, so these are technological marvels that were battleships. And what they did was when they decided to send these to the Arctic, they reinforced them. So all of their hulls were, like, stripped and steel and iron were put into them. They were completely refitted with a locomotive engine that was converted into a steam engine. They have no reason to expect that they're ever going to bow to the elements. And they have all the cockiness of the Victorian British expedition. They're like, we're going to win. Along with that engine, they had a heating system in the ships because of those engines. And so the heating system was in there in the ships and they had their own desalination system for the water. They were so set. So set. They were so set. They had so much food. They had so much vitamin C because scurvy had already been identified. They've had lime juice on the ships by now. Like This is not an issue. None of this. And yeah, as you said, they had a heating system. Like they had this this huge stove, which I'm blanking on exactly what the stove was called, but they had this huge stove in the kitchen and all the pipes would run through. And that was actually part of the desalinization system. Like 
all the pipes ran through all this hull. And so all this hot boiling water was constantly being piped. You could actually get over 80 degrees Fahrenheit down in the lower decks at any given time. Why would you think that you could fail? They didn't think they could fail. Right. Like, yeah, exactly. It, impossible. <laughs> it was very Titanic. It was a very Titanic situation. The unsinkable. You know, it was one of those things where like, we, we've made an unsinkable shove. Fun fact, they did not. Anyways, so like they get to this point. And so we have the snow all well. We're like, okay, everything's fine. And then a year later, like almost literally a year later in May 1848, you have Crozier and Fitzjames and they update it. And the next thing we know is that they're abandoning the ships. They've been ice in since September 1846. It's been over a year now. They're rapidly running out of food because they were only stocked. Technically, they were provisioned for five years. They were really provisioned for three. So they were rapidly running out. And we really don't know what exactly was going on. But all we know is that they say that Franklin died in June 1846. So only one month after the Victory Point note was updated. And also that he lost 22 men by that point, which I actually had to go look up the statistics on this because there were a lot of other polar expeditions at the time. Crozier had just gone on the Antarctic expedition, which lost four men in five years. There had also been a brutal and intense expedition under Sir John Ross previously, not that long before, maybe 10 years or so before, but it only lost three men despite losing a ship. So 22 men is unheard of. It's insane. Yeah, that's a lot in a year. Yeah, exactly. It's devastating. And so we know that three men were buried on Beachy Island. So we can already say, okay, we knew that these three were lost to pneumonia or possibly consumption early on because we have that record. So we have another 19 unaccounted for. What happened? What happened in a year where all of a sudden we're recording 19 men lost? Was it a mutiny? Was there a war? Was there an illness? Like, we don't know. And so there's mystery. And that's the thing that drives me crazy is that you don't know. Like, there's nothing we do. The, the show tries to answer this. Like, we try to know. <laughs> it has a, a vicious polar bear as the answer, but that's probably not what happened. <laughs> We you don't. don't think there was a vicious polar bear that just tore everyone's faces off? Like, Possibly. Really? <laughs> I'm not discrediting it. <laughs> so all of a sudden we have, we have 19, 19 men lost. And the interesting thing, if you look at it, it's something, it's something if I remember the full 22, it's, it's like nine officers and like 14 men or something like that. What exactly is happening? That's what I really want to know. And that's also where kind of the historical aspect of the fandom comes in because we're big enthusiasts when it comes to the dives to the shipwrecks, which Parks Canada is handling. They've been canceled the last two years, obviously, because of COVID and trying to keep that away from the area as much as possible. But we're hoping this year they can actually do the dive because one of the things that's really interesting is that the great cabin, which is the captain's cabin on HMS Terror, Crozier's cabin, is very well preserved. Like the way the silt and everything got in there that they think they can pull the whole desk up and maybe actually find intact papers and logs. So we might <gasps> actually have a chance of learning. Oh, wouldn't that be amazing? Oh, it'd be amazing. I want to know. To see like the last <laughs> things that he wrote. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to know more than anything. I'm so curious. What happened? <laughs> what happened? Maybe you should just strap a dive suit on oh, and I go know. down there and see. Right? It's just the, the story itself, even if it's not technically a story, it's such a Greek tragedy because you have this story of hubris. And you even have Crozier as the Cassandra character, where in his letters home, when he sends his last letter home in, I believe it's July 1845, as they're, they're docked at Disco Bay in, in Greenland, when he's writing to James Clark Ross, who was his very best friend, who had recently gotten married, yeah. he was talking about his misgivings and he's talking about how he doesn't think 
things feel right. And his big thing is he'd been to the Arctic a number of times before. And he was talking about how cold it was and how many sun dogs there already were and the ice breaking up. And he just didn't have a good feeling. And it's, it's very interesting because in, in the context of considering it's possibly even a Greek tragedy, it almost fits perfectly. I love that you're talking about it in terms of a tragedy, just because like, and I think we talked about this a little bit before the show here, but Captain Crozier's story to me is just so tragic on so many different levels. When you think about how he had been on that long expedition with Captain Ross before he became involved in the Northwest Passage expedition, and his expedition with Captain Ross earlier had been a huge success. They charted a bunch of really cool things. They named some cool volcanoes. They made some really interesting technological discoveries. I know that Captain Crozier was involved in magnetism while he was out there (laughs) and things like that. And so he comes home like this hero almost, you know, he wasn't knighted. But I mean, he was inducted into several scientific communities as a, I don't know, an associate of some kind. And it was just this really awesome thing. And to go from that to this expedition with the Northwest Passage where he's just not feeling it. And it's his last ride out. You know, it really is. That's yeah. how he goes out. That's how he goes out. Yes. This and I agree brutal. that the mystery is just so it's tragic and it is brutal. And you were always left wondering what happened. It's absolutely haunting because it's like we'll never know until we have more information. I know that there's a lot of speculation out there about what could have happened. I know a lot of people are still pointing to the scurvy thing because. Apparently, like, (laughs) citrus juice loses its potency after a while, so it still could have been some scurvy stuff going on. And I know that they've talked before about the canned food, because canned food was a new innovation at the time. And they were talking about how it may not have been sealed properly with all the cans that could have contributed to lead poisoning with the food. Although a lot of people are saying also that if there was any lead poisoning going on, it was probably more the heating system in the ships and the desalination process of the ships because the two ships were using lead pipes in their desalination technology. Um, and so, like, there was just lead poisoning everywhere, apparently. So a lot of people say, right, that, oh, well, we know that that could have been a factor, at least. But that's a, still a lot of people to die so fast. It's a lot. It's, it's more than you would attribute to, to really anything. Short of maybe an accident or some force of nature or... Right, right. So yeah, the mystery is always still there. There was one fact that I pulled out from some website that I thought was funny. And you probably, like, people will slap me because I don't know why I think this is funny. But um, I read that obviously the temperatures up in the Arctic are very cold. I live in Arizona, so I can't possibly comprehend minus 50 degrees Celsius. You know, like I cannot comprehend that type of temperature, right? But they were saying that as you're out there in minus 50 degree weather and you're pulling sledges or sleds or whatever it is you're trying to do out there, you're working up a sweat. And they, they were saying that if you stop, because it's so cold, that sweat is going to turn to ice in your underpants. And now you have like icy chonies. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. So icy chonies, like super not cool. 
That was no. one of the things that they probably <laughs> had to deal with. After, I don't know why I thought that was so funny, but I was just that's like, hilarious. Oh, that's that's so sad. <laughs> and then, like, the show actually did a really good job of showing this going along with the cold weather part. You know, you could not place cold metal instruments onto your skin as no. you were out there because it would stick to you. And so a couple of times the show actually does show that where you put a monocle up to your eye or a telescope or whatever, and it's like stuck to your skin now because it's so damn cold. Yeah, there's a there's a very, for some reason, the scene is burned into my memory where Crozier is actually when Sir Don Franklin is dying, which I, I don't think is a, is a spoiler considering he actually died in real life. When Crozier's putting up the telescope to his eye, you can you can see it pull away and tear the skin off. Yes! <laughs> And like, I, I turned it into a gift at one point because it just was just a beautiful moment of cinematography as well. I think it also is a bit of a symbolic moment, not to get too much of the cinematography, which I also think is amazing. It's a bit of a symbolic moment of tearing away like the, the what they thought everything was to kind of the brutality within. Like there was kind of this moment of realizing it was a horror show. I just love that right there. Yeah, they did such a good job on the show of building up to that slowly. Because it's so suspenseful the way that they did it. Because, it yeah, you, you think they're just going out there and they're going to have a great time and they're going to conquer the Arctic and rah, rah, rah. And then it's just this slow buildup of like, something's not right. Something's yep. weird. Like something's <laughs> going on. And it just creeps up so slowly that it really is so horrible once it's like in your face. That was definitely like super, super cool. I ended up doing a lot of research on the three main characters of the show who were, of course, real people. There was Francis Crozier, Captain Franklin, and there was James Fitzjames. And it was so fascinating to dive into their histories. One thing that I didn't realize about the Navy back then, the British Navy, was how common it was for people to join the Navy at such young ages. I'm kind of going through my notes here. Was it Crozier that joined at like 12? Crozier joined at 13. 13? Yeah. And then Franklin was 14. And mm -hmm. uh, who was 12? Was it James Fitzjames? Fitzjames. Yep. Yeah. So young. These so are young. like 12, 13, 14 year old boys. These are boys. These are going boys. Going off to sea. Yeah. Yeah. That was incredible to me. Like, I had no idea that these people were joining the Navy so young. And generally being pushed there by their parents. Uh, Crozier was pushed in by his father. He wasn't especially thrilled to do it he's very he's very duty oriented so he just kind of if you told him to do something he went and he did it one of my favorite stories to get just a little off track about francis crozier is early on under captain perry he was told at one point to go out and take measurements i i believe they were magnetic or climactic i can't remember but go out and take measurements so he went out and did it and this horrible squall came up and they're waiting for him to come back and waiting and waiting finally perry himself goes out to look and Francis is just sitting there still taking his measurements in this horrible storm. He's like, well, you told me to be here, so I'm here. So he's just this, this guy that if you tell him to do it, he will do it. And one of the things that also fascinated me was that James was the polar opposite, that his parents didn't want him to go into the Navy. But he was so willful. They put him on for maybe six months, and then he decided, like, this is what I want to do. I, I want to do this. And he badgered them until <laughs> they would allow him to go back. That's such a Fitzjames thing to do, though, because he really was so adventurous with the things that he wanted to do. But, you know, it's interesting because, you know, there are stories like historical stories of him doing really brave things, saving people, getting into firefights, you know, things like that, where he would just kind of 
jump into the fray. I don't know. He seems like one of those leap before you look kind of people to me a little bit. Yeah, he's larger (laughs) than life. He's like, somebody's in the river. I'm jumping in there and I'm going to save you. Here's that guy. (laughs) He literally did that with the Mercy River. At one point, he jumped in and he saved somebody. I think he got the key to the city, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he did. I know that he kind of rescued George Barrow a little bit. Yes. George Barrow was the son of John Barrow, who was the, I think, the Admiralty Secretary at the time in England or something like that. And so he kind of saved George a little bit from some scandal that was going on. And, uh, and that's kind of how he got into the good graces of Sir John Barrow. And that kind of helped his Navy career there just a little bit. But, just but that's bit. just kind of who Fitz James was, though. Yeah. You know, he was very, I think we were talking about how charismatic he was, which I think is true. Yeah, he was so charismatic. He had this very beloved friend that would write stories about him and and you see a lot of stories where it's like oh fitz james showed up in my bedroom last night and we had a pillow fight or i was out (laughs) (laughs) like i was out gambling and all of a sudden this weird guy showed up and started arguing with me and then i realized it was fitz james in a disguise like this is he once (laughs) smuggled a cheetah onto his ship the hms cleo like this was this guy (laughs) he was just that guy Okay, so that begs the question then, do you think that he had that kind of a reputation then in the military? Like, I'm just trying to think of when Crozier first realizes that Fitzjames is going to be the commander. Does Fitzjames's reputation precede him at that point, do you think? Like, does Crozier know? Oh my gosh, this ostentatious guy. Yeah, it, it's a good question. See, the interesting thing about it, he had to have known something about it because Fitzjames was actually requested by Ross to come aboard, I think it's an artillery commander, during the, the Antarctic expedition. And there's no way Ross didn't tell Francis everything. Like, they talked about everything. So I'm sure he had to have known something of the young Fitzjames, who at that time, I believe, was a, a lieutenant. So he had to have known a little something. But then again, he was, a, he was away for five years. So all of Fitzjames' exploits in those five years, which he had quite a few, might not have reached him. And the other interesting thing that we know about Crozier at the time, even though we know he probably wanted to command the expedition, we also know he refused it at one point, uh, the Franklin expedition itself, because, and this is where you get a little bit into the fact that we have a bit of a show fandom and a historical fandom. In the show fandom, we largely ship Crozier and Fitzjames, but in the historical fandom, it's, it's really more Ross and Crozier. Um, we all think that Crozier may have had a few feelings about his very best friend in the world. Oh, they loved each other. They really did. They really did. If it wasn't romantic, he at least loved him deeply in a platonic way and was very melancholy is the right way, I think the right way to put it over um, the fact that Ross got married. So he actually took time off. He was put on a basically a cruise by the Navy just to sail around. So he went around the Mediterranean and he was not particularly excited. His letters home are basically just, I'm melancholy and I'm sad and I guess I'll go on this expedition, which almost makes it more heartbreaking. He just didn't know what else to do with himself. So as I was researching, going along with what you just said, I did find one of Crozier's letters home to James Ross in 1845. I know you've read this. Of course you have. But it was just so beautiful. I was hoping that I could read it out just a little bit, this one little paragraph. Because, yeah, people have to remember that James Ross and Crozier had gone on that expedition before the Franklin expedition started. So they had this 
beautiful friendship and they were really close and they had a lot of respect for each other. And so as Crozier is off on this new Franklin expedition without his best friend, James Ross, I think you're right that he was feeling like super melancholy about the whole thing. He says, well, my dear friend, I know not what else I can say to you. I feel that I'm not in spirits for wintering, but in truth, I am sadly lonely. And when I look back to the last voyage, I can see the cause and therefore no prospect of having a more joyous feeling, the bustle of the seas. Oh, well, however the life has me and come what may, I will endeavor to sit down at the end of it content. And when I read that, I was just like, Crozier, what are you doing to me? My heart cannot handle this. He loved Ross. And it was so sad to him that he was without him at that point. And he was missing him so badly. So, so much. Like one of my notes actually for talking about this was something that I wrote about. I really think that he would have been happy anywhere as long as he was with James Clark Ross. But that was the only thing that really mattered to him. And I don't think it needed to be romantic. You know, he just, I think he wanted to sail the world, almost in a bit of a Jack Aubrey, like Stephen Matron sort of way, just sail the world for the rest of his life with his best friend. And that got taken from him. He was devastated. Yes. Yes. You know that scene at the end of Lord of the Rings when Legolas and Gimli go off on that horse together and they just, I don't know, gallop around the world, you know, together. And you can kind of extrapolate what you will from that. But it kind of reminded me of that, too. Where it's just like these two best friends who just want to be together. And I got that same sense that you did, that Crozier just wanted to be with Ross. And the fact that he was now on this new expedition with these people that maybe he didn't really feel all that great about. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, You know, and he's just missing his friends so badly. And I agree. I think he would have gone anywhere with Ross. Anywhere. Anywhere. And Ross was deeply in love with his wife, Anne. And... Francis felt like a, a third wheel, like, what else is he going to do? So he, he took the expedition. He did. And, you know, he wasn't as old as I thought. He was like no. 49, 49 when it yeah. launched. Yeah. So he wasn't that old. And I know we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but I felt so bad for Crozier because he's 49 years old. You would think that he <laughs> would be in charge more, right? Because he's yeah. the one that's been out on these famous expeditions with Ross. He's the one with the most recent sailing experience. Franklin had been governing, where was that? Tasmania? Yeah. He was off governing somewhere Mm -hmm. for years and years and years. And they choose him to like ahead Mm -hmm. of the expedition. He hasn't been at sea for like how many years? Something like five, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And he was older too. Like Franklin was 59. So um, (laughs) he was a little old, you know, so I feel bad for Crozier in that respect. But then I also just feel bad that not only is he not the guy in charge here, despite probably being the most qualified and having the most experience, but then like Fitz James is the one who they choose to be in charge of picking the entire crew. So he's not even allowed to choose who he has on his own damn ship, except for one person. I think we said that he, he was able to choose Jobson. Yeah, Thomas Jobson, his, his captain steward, who had also been with him in the Antarctic. That was his one thing he put his foot down on. Right. The one thing he had control over. And I just think, man, poor Crozier. I just felt so bad for him put into this position where I think he felt slighted. At least that's how I'm interpreting it, because I would feel slighted if I was in that position, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's one one of his letters really strikes me. I don't remember the exact phrasing, but one of the things Fitzjames got put into, most of his focus seemed to be on Fitzjames as the person he 
chose to feel slighted by. But Fitzjames was put in charge of the magnetic readings, and Francis basically was just like, well, I'm here to help, even though he was the one that was the fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. Like, he was the one that had made all these, <laughs> all these studies of his, you know, of it in the past and had mastered it, and Fitzjames was not. So, yeah, he was, he was, a he was the expert. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was a little petty over it. A little petty, but with good reason, though. Like, you just feel so bad for him. Because, like, at, at 49 years old, and you've just come back from this amazing expedition with Ross, you would feel on top of the world. At least that's how I would feel. On top yeah. of the fucking world. And then you come home and you get slighted like that? Mmm. Mmm. Like, I just... I just felt so, so bad. So bad for him. So bad for him. Yeah, because that ends up being the last thing that he does. You know, obviously, I've been talking about Crozier for like a thousand years here at this point. So obviously, we know that Crozier is like my favorite at this point. He was the one that I just felt so attached to after I got to know him from the historical documents and researching his life and everything. I was wondering, who are you the most attached to and, and why? I think that really has to be separated by show and, and by historical fandom. Overall, I would say probably Crozier, especially with historical. I just think he's, his melancholy, I'm, I'm really interested in his melancholy self. And he's so, like, he, he's not full of himself at all. He's very self-deprecating. He's always the last to share himself. And one of the things I always thought was interesting was when he returned to his hometown and there was this new church that had been built. And he was known as sort of a hero in his hometown of Banbridge in, in Northern Ireland. Yes, he was a Banbridge man. Yes, yeah, he, he was, was a Banbridge. <laughs> and so he had actually sort of a, a right to, to go to sort of the front of the church in the front pew. But he would just sit in the back because in his point of view, God could hear you just as well in the back as in the front. So he didn't, he didn't push that. He was very low-key. He did not want to draw attention to himself, with, which did not help him in the Navy because you sort of needed to. So I've always been really drawn to Crozier because I have just... He makes me feel so many feelings at any given time. He's, he's just always very complicated. But when you get into the show itself and, and there's a little bit more that we know of this, the smaller characters, and there's sort of a phenomenon that we, we see in anybody who's watched the pair more than once, the first time you sort of focus on the main characters and then you get into the secondary and tertiary characters as, as you keep watching it. I've really clung on to Thomas Jobson a lot, who I think is the peak most Virgo man in the world. Uh, yes! <laughs> he's so Virgo. He's just so, he's so controlled and he's so careful and he's very, he's very anxious. And as a Virgo myself, I very much project on to Thomas Jobson. So he's my, my little little production man. And then also John Irving. So I grew up in West Michigan as a very Christian Reformed Calvinist child. So John Irving being the very religious, religious shame haunted by religion sort of person, like that's another one I'm very fixated on. I like telling stories from his point of view because I, I'm very interested in all the things that they experience from a very religious lens. Like what he goes through, particularly like how does he feel abandoned by God and if you put him into a smut fic, like, how is he going to react to that? Like, I think those are very right. interesting. So, like, John Irving is another one that I'm very drawn to, personally. Oh, that's awesome. And I can absolutely see how the religious aspects would be so fascinating to play with. Because they were fascinating on the show. So, 
the fic for the terror that you wrote that I wanted to talk about today was Elegy for a House on Fire. And I find this fic so fascinating for lots of different reasons. But it is a rare pair, first of all, because it pairs Thomas Jobson with Solomon Tozier. And it's also a modern AU. When I first read it, because I read it more than once, and when I first read it, I was a bit confused because I didn't realize it was a modern AU. And I was like, why are they driving around in cars? Like, that's so weird. This is, about, you know, 19th century. But then I realized like, oh, okay, got it. Modern AU. Hello. I am famous for not reading tags. So that's my bad. <laughs> yeah. But it's this beautiful exploration, I feel, of generational trauma. And how we can ever, ever escape who we come from and where we come from and how we got there. I was hoping that you could talk to us a little bit about what themes that you were exploring here with Elegy for a House on Fire and what inspired this fic. Yeah, that's such a, it's such a weird fic because it's actually, it, I don't expect anyone to read it because it's such a rare pair. And it's, it's not something I expect anyone to read also because it's not super ship heavy in a sense where a lot of goals I think of fix and fix I've written are to get the main characters together but in this one what I'm really interested in exploring is Thomas and his mom yeah yeah in the show what we know the the main thing we really learn about Thomas's character is when he's taking care of Crozier during Crozier's detox from alcoholism and he talks about his mother being addicted to laudanum and I thought that was so interesting I have some personal elements that I could relate to. So I really wanted to get into that. And I relocated them to the modern day American Midwest just because that's where I'm from. So I decided to really go yeah. into to a personal connection on that one. But it's so interesting because what I want to see is like, what is Jobson's relationship to his mother and his family trauma and caring for her through that? Now he's in his 20s. He's dropped out of college. Um, he's making sure he's a good older child, you know, to to make sure that his brother is going to college and is doing everything that he's supposed to do and that his mom is cared for. But he's really not allowed to ever, ever feel anything. Like, he survives day to day. But he really is behind that polite smile, like, uh, which is also what I felt in the show. He's a, he's a pile of broken glass. Like, he is about to explode at any given time. And the reason I had to do a rare pair with it is the person Jobson is most usually paired with his Crozier, but he tends to just say yes to Crozier at any time. What I really wanted to see was someone like Tozier, who is a Marine in the show, and he's someone that's like oddly comfortable with his sensuality and physicality. And I'm really interested in seeing how Jobson would relate to that, especially if he had like some kind of like hidden homophobia in his own self against himself. If Tozier could really push on him in this way that teases out the edges and kind of like can pull up what he really is outside of who he expects and is forcing himself to be. Like, that's what I want to see. And a core element of the way Jobson is written is that he's, he's an immigrant child. He's a second generation immigrant, okay? which is a key element because in a way, Tozer kind of represents that kind of golden boy Americana that he was born to and is expected to be and feels like he can never quite be because he comes from this. In the story, his mother is, his mother had moved from a, as a child from Romania, and so his grandmother's from Romania. So he's trying to constantly straddle that first world, second world reality where he's both an American in ways, but he's also Romanian. He's never one thing, and he resents it. He resents it a whole, whole lot, and he doesn't know how to reconcile it at any time. 
And since he can't lash out as a mother because he's a good child, the only people he can lash out is himself and at Tozier. So that's really what he's doing at any given time. They're sleeping together, but he's angry. Like, he is an angry man. So that's, like, that's, that's how it is. He's, he's working through all this with Tozier. It's really more about him coming to terms with the fact that he is an immigrant in a world of chi- uh, child of two worlds and that his mother has this addiction as well. And he's sort of been forced to be the parent in this relationship. Yes, yes. That was the impression that I got when I was reading this story is that this is very much a story about Jobson and his mother. And I just wanted to ask you, just, just so I am clear in my brain too, because I am assuming that when we're talking about a story, a fictional story about Jobson and Tozier, we are really basing the fictional characters based on the fictional characters that we're seeing on the actual terror TV show. Would that be fair? Because we don't actually know that much about Jobson and Tozier, the real life people. We know that these were actual real life people that were on, I think they were on the terror, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So they're signed into the manifest of the terror, but we don't know anything about these people except their ages, you know? So all of the characterization that we're seeing in fan fiction with Jobson and Tozier, my understanding is that that's more coming from the fictional characters that we're seeing from the TV yeah. show. <laughs> this is all informed by the show. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Got it. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that I'm not like tripping there because um, that's nope. what I assumed is that we were going off of the fictional lives that they created for the TV show, which I agree with you that Jobson's was so fascinating to me. Most of these characters don't actually talk a whole lot about their backgrounds and stuff. But that small scene where he gets to tell Crozier, oh, yeah, my background and my mom. And then when I saw you take that history and that background with his mother and put it into this fan fiction, I related so much to that because I feel like the older I get anyway, the more I realize that so much of who I am is irreparably tied to who my parents were and who their parents were. And as much as I try to say like, oh, you know, their mistakes won't be my mistakes and (laughs) I'm better and all that stuff, you can't ever escape who you came from. No. The parts in your story where he is like, he's essentially like, I don't know, writing or speaking these letters to his mother. Because there are things he wants to say to her that he feels like he can just never say to her, you know? Yeah. There are some things you want to say to your ancestors that you can just never say. That rang so true to me because I love that we're like viewing Jobson as a Virgo here because (laughs) I can absolutely see that a hundred percent. So controlled, so dutiful. You do what needs to be done. And, you know, for the most part, you don't let yourself feel these feelings. You don't let yourself express them. So the fact that he's trying to express them in the only way he knows how, it's beautiful to me that he's doing that. But you can. You can hear, like, rage in there. And a lot of sadness, but a lot of rage, too. So that was so super interesting to me. I'm so interested in the idea of trauma as inheritance. And an inability to kind of get out of our own way and get away from ourselves. Like, we, we've inherited these traumas. and. And how do we, how do we build around them? And there's this book that floored me. Uh, it's called On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vuong. And I'm not Vietnamese, so I won't make any claim to be. But I, I, I do have some experience with being a child from a family 
torn by places with violence, uh, mostly like, you know, Eastern Bloc, that sort of world, which is why I'm setting it with his, his parents in, uh, from Romania. And, and you do have that, like, even if you've come to a place where that's not a thing, you bear all the same wounds that your family does. You're still listening to those stories. You know your family has been torn apart in these specific ways, so you're still bearing them. You still have to heal from things that you may not have been alive for to have happened. Yes, yes. You know, I'm not qualified to talk about this whatsoever, but I do know that in recent years, they have been doing studies on generational trauma, and they've been doing studies on the biological... How would I put this? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, Yeah, like the stress. Yeah. Yes, the biological stress of the family trauma that your ancestor felt four generations ago lives in your body, in your cells. It's inside of you. It is a part of you. And you can never get rid of that. You can never run away from it. That's what I was thinking the whole time I'm reading this fic is that whole concept of biological, genetic, generational trauma. And what do you do with that? And what do you do with it? I think it's a very Western concept that we're born blank. I, I don't think we are, not to get sort of metaphysical and philosophical there, but I almost think it's healthy to recognize that there is stuff that you maybe weren't there for and that you need to, to talk about. I mean, at least for me, um, you know, writing a character who has been dealing with this, which is actually my second fic, but I've, I've kind of broached this. There's another one called Revishal Calling that I'm, I'm still working on for Disco Elysium, which is a, a video game fandom. But he's another, he's a, another like immigrant character who's been dealing with this his whole life. And it's just like, how do you reconcile this? How do you become the person that you think you should be, even though you're starting already punched a little, already a little beaten up? Like, how do you heal from that and become, and don't you resent somebody who doesn't have to deal with that? Like, that's him and Tozer. Tozer is already fine. He's got everything. So, like, that's interesting to me. How do you deal with that? Yeah, yeah. And that's the question I feel like is being asked in the subtext of your fan fiction here is how do you deal with that? And I love that part of how he deals with it is he is in his own way trying to express it with these letters to his mother, you know, trying to communicate it somehow and get it out of his body. A poor guy, you know, like it's so hard to do that. It is so hard and so like, it's just beautiful, the parts where he's speaking to his mother. I, oh my God, like it, it meant so much to me to see that. But you can absolutely see that below the surface, there's all that emotional drama going on. I feel like you've already addressed this just a little bit here, but what does Tozier represent to Jobson in your fic? I know you've gone into how Tozier doesn't have the same trauma, right, <laughs> that Jobson has. And he kind of, He's a little bit the catalyst for us viewing Jobson's internalized homophobia a little bit and all of that stuff. But is there um, anything else that you could talk about in relation to like what Tozier is representing to Jobson here? I think, actually, I, I, I have a lot of feelings on what Tozier represents to Jobson. So jo Jobson starts in the first chapter or two really seeing Tozier not as Tozier. He's not fair to Tozier in the fact that he kind of sees him as representing everything that Jobson is not. Like, he desires Tozier, but he's still a symbol to him of what he isn't, of this America that he can't have. And what I also want to get in there is, there's a very personal experience that I have of being put on a pedestal and not being allowed to be a human being, which I experienced in another fandom. And so I have Tozier pushing back at him a lot which he hasn't quite 
started to, so the next chapter he really starts doing that, calling Jobson to task for basically not allowing him to be messed up and be vulnerable. Like he he doesn't have to be the symbol because he is a human being. And I, I really want to see Jobson called to task a little bit for only using this other person to process his own trauma. I think that's really what's going to wake him up a little bit. So they do have kind of two different things that in the fact that like Tozer's very he's he's both a representation of everything Jobson isn't, but at the same time, like he's you know, he's his own self and and he he's resenting Jobson at any given time for not allowing him to be. Right. And you could see that, I think, in the most recent chapter that you published with that fic is, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because just the way that he's kind of treated when they go back to, uh, I think they go back to Jobson's place. And just that whole, that whole interaction, you know, like I could feel where Jobson was coming from, but I could also feel where Tozier was coming from. Yeah. Like for Tozier to come into that situation and have no idea of the backstory of what's going on here and the demons that Jobson is like dealing with, you know, that must be a very confusing situation for him. Yeah, he's he's very upset. And I think rightfully so on all of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even though yeah, Jobson just wants to get him out of his house. I know. He's like, can you leave now? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, we're done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which I thought was just so interesting to me. That brought up so many more questions like, oh my gosh, like what's going on here with Jobson doing that? Because there are parts in there where you get the sense that Jobson's, um, shall we say, relationship with his parents wasn't the best. And you would think that he would very much be wanting that human connection so when he finds it in Tozier, I thought that was so telling that the moment he has that opportunity to be soft and vulnerable and like human with another person, he throws him out of his apartment. He <laughs> throws him out, which is that's a telling on myself sort of thing. Um, so there's this concept, very well respected, called attachment theory. And one of them is avoidant attachment. So I've given him an avoidant attachment style. So the second he has that ability to be supported and be connected to, he he can't handle it. So he he's ready to push Tojer away as much as possible. Oh, that's so interesting to me. You know what's funny? And everybody will just have to forgive me. I'm old, right? So the first time that I heard about that attachment style was from Instagram. Don't hate me. <laughs> Don't hate me. I watch reels when I'm uh, eating breakfast in the morning. And there just happens to be a bunch of people on Instagram that talk about different attachment styles. And it, you know, that's how I was introduced to that concept. So I know just a little bit about avoidant attachment style. Is it fear that's driving that? That you're just so afraid of somebody actually seeing you that you're just like, meh. Is that what Jobson is afraid of? Is just like, or is it the fear of losing something once he has it? It's kind of like, it's an attachment style largely driven by parents that are emotionally absent which is his his mother definitely at this point like she's constantly making him be a parent to his younger brother and not really being there so these are children that have really learned to isolate themselves and draw in within themselves so whenever they're starting when they whenever they need support they draw into themselves for it but not in a necessarily strong confident sort of way just like shutting down almost like those um like pill bugs or those roly polies that close in upon themselves like yes. like that's what he's doing so he needs protection and he needs support but he, the only thing he knows is how to shut down so that's what he's doing yeah 
Uh, yeah, so it's like that self-protection mm-hmm. kind of a thing. And that makes so much sense. But so confusing for poor Tozier, who's like, what the hell is going on here? It's like, I just like you. I know, I know. know. But so tragic that we are able to see it because you wrote this from um, Jobson's point of view. So the fact that we do get to see it from his point of view and how he's feeling as he's doing these and saying these things, it's just, it's so tragic and tender to me. I am really enjoying this fiction. I can't wait to see where it goes as you continue to update because it is work in progress. Poor Jobson has so many things that he needs to let go of, which is really hard. I feel like. Sometimes letting go of things is one of the hardest and bravest things that a human being will ever have to do. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Sometimes you start to define yourself by all the things you're, you're clinging to, even if they're the negative things. And he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't know how to let go of that. Yes. And then they become your identity. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So when you go to finally let go of these things, where does that leave you in terms exactly. of identity? Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Oh, I can feel the gears turn in here. I'm super excited to see where this goes. It's so super cool. So, of course, I kind of want to switch gears here just a little bit. You've written for lots of different fandoms, and you have written for the Good Omens fandom. We had a Good Omens author on last year. I really wanted to have a few more. Maybe this year we will, because I am just absolutely fascinated with the whole story of the angel and the demon and how long they've known each other and they're not supposed to be friends, but they are. And it's just, it's a fascinating, beautiful thing. But you wrote a fan fiction for Good Omens called The Wine Dark Sea. And I did want to talk about that just a little bit here because we had the opportunity to kind of go back and forth here about writing and fan fiction. And we we sent messages back and forth. You talked about writing being incredibly emotive for you and visually descriptive for you. You talked about your writing process being emotion-driven, especially with Wine Dark Sea. So I was hoping that you could kind of take us through Wine Dark Sea here just a little bit and talk about the emotive, visually descriptive, emotion-driven aspect of writing for you. Yeah, so Wine Dark Sea was really not a fic I ever intended to write. It just kind of poured out. It's the story of they become mortal and Aziraphale gets cancer at, at some point down the line. Crowley has to, to basically watch him pass away slowly from cancer and then and cope with it thereafter. So what had happened was I, I, I've had a series of quite a few losses over the last couple of years. And when I wrote that fic, I'd lost my maternal grandfather three months before on Christmas Day in 2019. And I'm not a... I'm famously, with my friends, not an emotional person. It takes me a very long time to process things. So I, I didn't cry on that day. I was just very, like, stoic. And then finally, three months later, it all came out basically on the page. And, like, sometimes you just snap and you need to kind of say something about grief or at least your personal experience of grief. And when I write, it is an emotional process. Like, really, when I start writing, the only thing I know at first is the ship and the emotion that I want to explore. From there, I build a plot and start thinking about scenes and metaphors and everything. But really, like what I know the whole time is at least the emotion I want to leave the reader with, like the dominant emotion, there will be hopefully multiple throughout the process. But that's really what I want to explore. And and so the Wine Dark Sea is really an exploration of grief from the beginning to the end, because you start with the realization that grief is is going to happen and the preparation from it, and then all the way through until the way you learn to live with the grief. Like you can't control it. You can't navigate it. It's going to go. 
where it wants and at its own pace. And all you can really do is just go along with it. And so I really just finally needed to put it down. Writing is really, it's a bit of a confessional experience for me. It's very much a diary where I'm basically saddling all these others with my own personal issues. So everything Crowley basically experiences, even if it's like slightly modified to fit the story, is something that I pretty much experienced. So I wanted to get that very sterile waiting room sort of atmosphere while you're waiting for somebody you love to pass. It's from like a long, slow cancer sort of thing. You do get this this long, tired feeling where it's just phone calls every day of how are they doing? And and it's, you get tired of it, but not in a way that it's like you, if they could get better, then you would want them to get better. But if they can't, you want them to not be in pain anymore. And you sometimes feel guilty about that, where it's like, like, should I be hoping for this? And at the time the death happens, sometimes it's a relief. And you can't explain that to somebody who hasn't been through it. But once you've been through it, like you understand, like sometimes there's nothing you can do and they're in pain every day and you just want it to be over for them. And that's kind of what they're going through. But I also wanted to say that it wasn't like a dark and endless thing. I, I do think, I think when you think about grief before having experienced it, you think it's this very heartrending, you're going to tear at your chest and cry sort of thing. And I'm sure for some people it is, but it, it's just such an enduring feeling where part of it is also like learning to plant a tree like Crowley does at some point in there and plant a garden. And it's, it's learning that there's going to be new faces and, and the world is going to go on. Like that's a very big part of it is how do you incorporate the memory of this person? into the world that doesn't have them but remembers them you know like that's part of it you know as as you're going on it and just i guess that was my biggest thing like i really wanted to convey like what this whole arc of grief is like he starts from the beginning knowing he's going to lose his ear to he has a garden and there's these two boys playing in it that kind of look like them and it so in a sense the story goes on even if it's not the same people I loved this story so much because, you know, I talked at the beginning of this episode, I think, about how honest I feel your writing is. This happened to be one of the first things that I ever read from you. And the emotional honesty that I found here was just spectacular. I've never seen anything like it before. I, too, lost my grandfather in 2019 to cancer. And my own experience with grief was so echoed here in your story. I couldn't quite believe that there was someone out there who knew exactly what it felt like. And it kind of like exactly, what's the word I'm looking for? Like you charted the journey of it so perfectly because, yeah, when it's something that's happening slowly, there's nothing you can do except stand there and watch it happen slowly. I appreciate that in your story, you put Crowley through that whole journey of learning that this is going to happen and having to emotionally prepare for that while also having to caretake the love of his life through that whole process. I find it very interesting when you when you look at people who have to caretake people that are dying, right, their loved ones and stuff, how difficult that is because not only are you worried about them and you're trying to make them comfortable and your whole life revolves around taking care of their physical needs, but then at the same time, you're already emotionally grieving because you know what's coming. You know what's happening, exactly. Yeah, you're preparing yourself. Yeah. Yeah, and just how heavy that is. So many heavy emotions that you're going through as you're preparing for your loved one dying. It's just, you know, and the way that you put it in here was just so perfect. 
I was thinking as I was reading Wine Dark Sea again to prepare for this, that I really felt like part of the emotional impact here with your story, at least for me, is somewhat elevated just because we know the incredibly deep backstory and connection that these two characters have with each other. I mean, we're talking about like thousands and thousands of years they've known each other. Thousands of years they've been dancing around each other. And for them to finally get together, right, and be free to do that, and then have this tragic thing happen, I felt like that kind of elevated, you know, the emotional impact here. Was that true for you as you were writing it? I was so curious about that. Yeah, I think it's a story that really benefits from from their history, from that long, hard won companionship. I think it could be. It could be. I think it could be a part of any love story because. One thing that, that I'm really interested in is in stories, especially fan fiction, because we're, we're really here largely for a good time, is we're always ready to tell the first chapters of a love story, but we don't want to tell the last chapters. We'll fade out to a happily ever after, but even if Crowley and Aziraphale are immortal, we all personally experience last chapters of our own stories. And I, I think there is something beautiful in being loved all the way to the very end and like taking it past it like that, um, sort of closing the book in a sense. And especially having something where they've really had to like work up to it for so long. It's been so long trying to get there. There is this sense of even more loss because they could have had longer together, but they didn't. Yeah. So what you just said there to me is one of the most poignant parts of the entire piece there's that line that you put in there about how stories are full of beginnings. And I felt like, oh, yeah, that's so true, right? Because so many love stories that we read about, it's the beginning, right? When the characters get together and they're so in love and it's this beautiful beginning. But then you say in that same line that someone has to tell the end. That's life. Like you just said, life is full of endings. Somebody has to tell the end. And that's the position that Crowley is in. And so I do think that that's so beautiful because. You said it. Death is just as much as part of life as as beginnings are, and that's going to be a part of all of our stories eventually. Eventually, there's there's nothing else to do. So I think there's a, there's a part of me that, especially after being through so much grief lately, I I, I don't think we should shy away from it. So I, I really think it's important to to tell those stories and and to let them be as beautiful, even if they hurt. Like they they're going to hurt sometimes in very mundane sort of ways, where all of a sudden you realize how much they hurt, but. I think you need to tell those last stories. Like when I wrote the, I've never cried while writing fanfic before until I wrote the very last lines of that fic because it was so much me closing the door on my own grandfather's relationship in a way. Like that was the end, but it ended with love. Oh, and I'm so glad that you brought that up. So, so glad because I agree with you 100% that it is so important that these stories be told even if they are sad stories, like very emotionally driven sad stories, because they're so much a part of who we are as human beings. All of our lives are going to be filled with happy and tragedy. And that's just part of being here and being alive. And it's so important that we don't shy away from the difficult things or the challenging things or the sad things. I think that's very much a Western culture problem, just in my opinion. <laughs> you know, um, There are so many cultures out there in the world that are so much better at handling grief than we are here. I remember that when I was going through my own ordeal, I was really not all that encouraged to talk about it because other people were uncomfortable, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, and so you feel weird talking about it 
with other people sometimes because you're like, well, I don't want to be the Debbie Downer. I don't want to make other people feel uncomfortable. But then you read about these other cultures where it's very normal when somebody passes away that the whole village comes and they sit there and they listen to the family members tell their stories and grieve and and it's considered totally normal (laughs) and part of the process and everything. I was just so in love with that concept because the stories need to be told. I'll never forget it. I had one person who sort of gave me permission to talk about it and gave me permission to feel any way I wanted to feel about it. And that was life-changing for me. Thank God for literature, right? And being able to tell these stories in this way because they need to be told. And I think that it means a lot to the folks out there who have had this type of experience to see it echoed. I think there's a lot, especially in the the Western world. I guess this is all anecdotal talking to my friends, but a lot of us don't go to funerals anymore. Like we, we have them, but I know in my own family, we don't largely do them. So there's a lot of us, I think, with this grief, we don't know where to put and we don't know what to do with it in a lot of ways. And there's a reason why so many cultures have death rituals. Almost every human culture has them. So we don't know what to do with it. And then if you just sit on it, like where do you put it? Which is kind of why I wanted to make sure Crowley, like there, there is a service but it's so small and no one attends because who do they know they really don't know anyone so he doesn't have anyone to grieve with and that was important to me to sort of echo my own experience so he has all these little grieving rituals that he winds up having on his own like the most important part to me was when he finds Israel's hair on his coat when he's doing the laundry because that was a thing that happened to me after a cat passed away that I, I loved my cat Shiloh and I found his whisker a couple months later. And it was just like, how can I get rid of this? This is my last connection to you. Yes. Oh, my God. See, and when I read that passage, that whole passage with the hair, that's when I knew that I was reading something from someone who had experienced that because that was very much my experience, too. You're going about your business, you know, day to day business, and something happens out of nowhere that reminds you of what you've lost. And you'll sit there and almost have this out of body experience because suddenly you're like inundated with all of these memories and all of these emotions. And that part where he comes home and he sees Aziraphale's like cup on the table. Mm -hmm. And he's like, Yeah, just a couple hours ago, there were two people here drinking tea or drinking coffee or whatever. And now all I have left is this cup sitting here on the table next to mine. Yeah. It was just so many moments like that where you're just thinking like, wow, a week ago we were two, (laughs) you know, a week ago it was different and now it's gone. It's so weird to reconcile. Like, like it's one of those things I was really thinking about. Like, I really remember when I heard that my grandfather passed, like looking outside and the sky was blue. So that's what I wrote in for Curly. Like when you watch a movie, like, it's always rainy and it's dark and the world cooperates with you. But sometimes you hear that there's this major thing and you look outside and someone's playing Despacito on their car stereo very loudly and the sky is super blue <laughs> yeah. and you've got junk mail on the yes. table and you're like, I don't understand. The world just yeah. changed fundamentally, but also it didn't. Like, how do you reconcile right. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do with that feeling? Yeah. I think there was a part in your fic where you just kind of have Crowley, like metaphorically carrying his earfill around in his pocket for a little while because he doesn't know where to put him and doesn't know where to put his grief. It's like this thing that he can't put down, like just like the hair. You don't want to get rid of that. And it almost feels bad to put it down. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. Right, right. And you start feeling guilty about it. And, you know, it was just, oh, oh, my gosh. It was quite the journey. And it just, it reminded me so much of different things that I experienced in my own thing. And I think that I learned after a while that grief is one of those funny things where, and you talked about this a couple minutes ago, where you can't control it. So it's like being on this journey you can't control. It felt to me like being in a canoe down a river. And I can't control where the river's going. I have no paddle. So all I can do is just sit there and observe what's happening, <laughs> you know, and react to it if I want to. And so that's kind of how it, it feels sometimes. It was much appreciated that Crawley kind of shows that. I do feel like it ends on a hopeful bent, even though it's so tragic and sad. I felt at least like this hopeful melancholy, I guess you could say at the end. So I think it has to. I mean, that's just... I think that's just the human experience. I, and I guess I'm, I'm feeling it a lot right now. So I might be a little, a little, you know, emotional about it. My brother recently told us that we're, he's going to have a baby and we've had four years of a lot of loss. So that is the, the, the human experience where you have this loss, but then it renews over and over again. Like you have the grief, but life goes on. So I don't think anything's wholly dark or, or wholly light. Like you just, it's this constant balance. And I guess that was kind of the important part to show. Like, he, he will be okay, no matter what. Because we all are okay. We move on. And you reach the high points again. So I don't know. I think that was a really, like, key point to see there. I think so, too. And isn't that interesting, just that concept of duality? I am constantly thinking of that. How can we exist in this very moment? And there's so much duality in our existence every single day. And that haunts me in the best way possible, (laughs) but it does haunt me. Like, I think about it all the time. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It it was such an interesting thing to write. And it was, I think it was a really good thing to write. It was the last, second to last fic I ever wrote for Good Omens. So I think it was a really good story to end on. It was kind of a way to close the book on that pairing, so to speak. But it was nice to, like, give them sort of their happy, even if it wasn't completely happy, but they were loved till the very end for the last chapter. They were. They were. They have such a beautiful love story in canon. It just elevated everything, I think, in your story. So it was it was beautiful, and I loved the way it ended. You know, I am so super curious about your writing process. Um, So you can talk about the writing process for The Wide Dark Sea, or you can talk about, you know, just your general writing process for the other fix that you've written. But I'm just really curious to know, what does your like creative writing process look like? If you could kind of walk us through that here real quick. Yeah, so my writing process is really pretty consistent across the path. I'm very much a an emotion sort of person, like it starts with an emotion. So there's a, a bit of a meme that was introduced by a good friend of mine in terror that everyone uses in the fact that it's like, oh, you know, Snagov is, you know, saying what if again, which means I'm going to come up with the worst possible situation to put people in. And even if Anna is already terrible, I'm going to make it worse. So I'm always trying to see, like, how can I make this sadder for everyone, um, unfortunately. So it's, it's usually, like, a concept that's already very sad, and then it's, what emotion can I find through it? At that point, I start writing, and I usually do four passes through any given story, especially the longer, the longer it is, the more structured I am. So the few times I've written novel-length things, I've actually used full, intense outlines with tabs and air table and date, you know, like, like really getting into outlining, but the shorter, it's, it's a little less intense. But my first pass is dialogue, because that's, that's pretty much the skeleton it all hangs on. Once I start thinking about the scenes, then I start writing out the dialogue of how they're going to interact. And then I'll come back 
and start putting description like are they moving toward each other are there is there furniture in this room and start sketching in some detail and setting but it's pretty fluid on the setting like i'm not looking up at at like what exactly kind of wood grain is this at that point like that i'll come back to later so it's really more just kind of getting a feeling down after i've got all that and then at that point i'll come back and do setting and then metaphor because that's that's always the thing that i try to have that i really enjoy putting like it's in there because i like writing it as some kind of metaphor or theme that i usually beat into the ground about like water or color or something i don't know it's, it's fun to do to kind of riff on a theme so i'll come back at that point i'm not a big editor i'll admit that which is why there's probably a lot of errors at any given time in my stuff so it's usually a quick edit pass before i go through it but with wine dark sea it was really interesting because that was very different it was almost more like being a conduit i actually wrote that in 24 hours <gasps> no kidding yeah that one just poured out most things take much longer <laughs> oh my goodness okay so you're saying that the very last thing that you cap on to most of the stories that you write is the metaphor which is so fascinating to me i've never heard that before that fascinates me because uh that's another thing that i notice the most about your writing is just the beautiful metaphor in there that i'm in love with so to know that that's the last thing that you add <laughs> kind of like adding spice to a dish you know yeah after mm -hmm. it's like almost done cooking like that's amazing i love that it's like adding salt right yeah it's salt, it's salt. <laughs> yeah. the salt of life that's so great i love that and then i want to go back to to what you just said about wine dark sea that's that's spectacular that you wrote it in such a short amount of time. Because I was going to ask you, like, what were the best parts of writing that piece and what were the most challenging? Uh, so that whole thing just poured out of me in a day. So I really, I don't think there was like a, a best or a most challenging. It basically is what you see is basically how it came out. There really wasn't even an edit pass. And I remember I was at work. I really got nothing done that day at all. So I really skirted my, my duties that day. But it was kind of the, it was a bunch of grief that I really just needed to get out. And I've never had that experience before or since. Most of mine are labors of love that I'm suffering over at any given time and constantly whining on Twitter that I can't write. But that one really, <laughs> <laughs> that one really just came right out. That one was a wild experience, really. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, that's kind of when you know that it was just so meant to happen. And it was meant to come out exactly the way that it did if it just came all out of you in such a short amount of time without a whole lot of editing or anything. You know, it's kind of interesting. This is maybe a little off topic, but I feel almost <laughs> like that really speaks again to how we handle these types of things in a Western culture. Because I remember that I didn't feel like I had time to grieve, not really. Because if you're lucky, your job may give you a day. Or maybe two, if they're super generous about it, right? And then you're expected to just go back to work yeah. and uh, I guess put your grief in your pocket and just ignore it for eight hours a day yeah. while you're dealing with like work stuff. And I, <laughs> you know, so like it does not surprise me at all that at some point you needed a whole day to just be like, I need to get this out. You just have to get it out. Yeah. It's interesting being in the terror all the time because you're around the Victorian concepts of, of mourning, which, which take years. Like you, you really dress, I think widows dress for mourning for two full years, if I remember correctly. And it's all due to proximity, you know, like sometimes months or whatever, but like they really allowed so much more time for mourning. And now we don't at all. 
We don't. You're just supposed to like, I don't know, shove it aside and mm-hmm. go back to your regular routine. And I think that's I think that's such a tragedy. We are feeling human beings. Like, we are. We, we, we need time to process emotions, especially, you know, you mentioned being the type of person that maybe doesn't process emotions as easily as other people. And I relate to that so much. I'm an earth sign just like you are. And so, you know, emotions yeah. have to come knocking or like tearing down my door before I even recognize that they're there, before I even recognize what they are. <laughs> it takes me forever. And so, like, you know, one or two days of, you know, grief PTO from my job is not going to do the trick. Guys, you know? Absolutely not. No, it's going to take a while. I might be feeling it for a long time before I have any idea what it is. Yes, uh, I relate to that so, so much. I'm so glad somebody out there knows what I'm talking about. Mm. Because sometimes I feel like a broken robot sometimes when I say stuff like that to people like, oh, yeah, like (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have trouble with emotions. But but that's one of the reasons why I just feel so indebted to you fan fiction writers out there, because fan fiction, more than anything, has helped me to recognize my emotions, put words to my emotions in ways that I could never do for myself. And that has been invaluable to me in working through lots of different emotional challenges that I've had for the last 25 years. (laughs) So a blanket thank you to you and to all of writers out there who help us who are, I don't know what you want to call it, emotionally challenged. We need a little bit of help sometimes, I think. We need a little push. (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit. Just a little bit. You know, I wanted to know, what's the most meaningful thing you've learned so far about the act of writing? And what's the best piece of writing advice that you've ever gotten? So it's interesting. I've actually been thinking about that a lot lately. And the two are the same. But the most meaningful thing that it's really develops for me is to separate myself from the idea of being a writer or being a creator, especially in, in fandom, but, but also in both. I think there is a tendency to hold ourselves up to this ideal of like, if I am a writer, what does that mean? But we're not, we're people who write. And that I usually am not keen to make the distinction, but I want to, because I think a lot of us, especially once you publish your first couple of fics, almost hold ourselves to this idea of like, I am a fan fiction writer now and I need to be writing something to keep that label and deserve it. And I keep seeing posts that say something of like, I haven't given anything to fandom. I don't really belong in this fandom. And, and, and that's not what fandom should be. And that's also not what writing should be. Writing is really for anyone. So there's this tendency to feel that we're a content creator. And the more that I separate myself from the idea of being a writer, the more that I am just a person who sometimes writes, the better my mental health is. And the more that I deal with writer's block, more creatively, proactively, and better. Like as I've been writing, I keep getting into this idea of like, I need to be a writer, like a writer with, you know, capital letters, seeking publication, being serious about it, not being self-indulgent. But why? Like what what is the purpose? Why are we doing it? like what does that mean if you are a writer or you're not? if you're just writing to enjoy it, like that's really the important thing is that you enjoy yourself while you're doing it. And I think that's, that's really been the most important thing to me is like, stop it. Like I don't try to write for publication anymore. I don't ever look at my stats. I don't think of myself as a content creator. I mostly just think of myself as a completely 
batshit person on Twitter at any given time about something that happens to write fic occasionally. The more that you think about it, like, not as a thing that you have to do, and not as a thing that defines you, but as a thing that you do sometimes because you enjoy it, I think that's the really important part. Yeah, taking that expectation and that pressure off of yourself. Right? Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that. I love that. Because you're right. I see writers all the time putting so much crazy pressure on themselves, you know, and you just think like, why? Why are you doing that? <laughs> you know, so it's so great to be able to step back from that and to just take that pressure off. Just allow yourself to be exactly what you need to be in that moment, whatever that looks like. Yeah, exactly. I absolutely love that. So we are coming to the end of our episode here. Are there any other writers that you wanted to shout out on the show before we close out? Yeah, I have a couple. Like the biggest one I really need to mention is uh, Mia Ugly. I've shared several fandoms with. Yeah. We were in Harry Potter together. We were in Good Omens together. And now the terror sure it's mind-bogglingly beautiful fic. And the first fic I ever read by her was Rapture. And I remember when I read it, I remember laying upside down on my bed, reading it, just blown away by her use of language and imagery and just how beautiful but also grotesque it was and the way she used parentheses that I just I'd never seen language used like that before and I wanted to try my own hand at it so she's really the reason that I am a fan fiction writer at all so I can't recommend her fix enough New Constellations is probably my favorite fic by her right now which it's a Jocelyn Edward Little fic and it basically invented romance it's gorgeous absolutely gorgeous <sighs> Oh, that sounds perfect. I've had the privilege of reading some stuff by, by Mia Ugly, and I agree with your assessment. Absolutely gorgeous. So that's perfect. Awesome. Who else do we have? I, I'm not a humor writer at all, but actually most of what I read is probably usually humor. Um, I'm always blown away by the talent. A couple of uh, friends of mine that I've read their entire backstories, now I'm worm my way into being friends with them, but Trident Tour, who's written for Good Omens and Jeeves and Wooster and a number of other things. They're also writing for the Untamed, the Sleep of the Ming Dynasty, and all the sea dramas that I'm really into right now. Just writes absolutely brilliant humor fix. At the Border, who also writes for Good Omens and the Terror. Also just genius, genius humor fix that tend to almost verge onto being a blend of dramedy at this point. Like, I, like she's really, she's really blended the tragedy and humor at this point. And every time I read something by her, I learn new words. Like, I'm always driven to the dictionary to look up the words that she's using. And Soft October, like, the three of them really are just a triad of just brilliant humor writers. And I can't write humor to save my life, so they blow me away every single time that I'm reading the three of them. Those really are the ones that I'd want to shout out to right there. Oh, that's perfect. And, you know, I feel like your assessment there with humor writing is, like, so spot on. Humor can be hard, right? That's not it's an so easy hard. thing to pull off. Yeah, so the folks that can do it in such brilliant ways, it's always so much fun. Thank you so much for those shout outs. We'll make sure to put those up on the show notes so that anyone who wants to check those out can do so because we love to be able to shout out as many fan fiction writers as we can on the show. Those were all the questions that I had for you today. Thank you so much. Oh, of course. Thank you. This has been such a privilege for me to get to talk to you and to just bask in all of the things that you have to say about fiction writing and about these characters and about the history of the terror and like all of these beautiful things we got to discuss today. So 
thank you so much for being here and for taking time out to see us today. Oh my God, thank you so much for inviting me. It was amazing. Absolutely. Check out their stories on AO3, folks. Give them some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram and Twitter at fanficmaverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling. <laughs>